What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome to another debrief, EP 24, where we share our nursing stories. So this week, pretty interesting week. I ended up picking up a 16-hour shift. So it was my night three out of three. And around midnight, they said, hey, we need some help for you to stay over four hours. So one cool thing about this hospital, the pluses and negatives is you have nurses that are grandfathered in for those eight-hour shifts. So one downside is you, you know, there's nurses coming in at 7, 11, and then 7 a.m. again. So sometimes you might be floating often like we usually do at 11 o'clock. But the upside is here, you could pick up a overtime shift, extra four hours. With that being said, it's double time. It's like you working eight hours in a regular shift. So it's two thirds of an extra shift. You're already there. You don't got to drive anywhere. And it was a cool experience because I stayed till 11 a.m. So I was, at, I was in the ICU. I was able to see how everything gets done on days, how they're rounding in this hospital, which is a little bit different. Some places we worked, the intensivist walks around with the team and they walk room to room. In this case, they're just huddled by the nurse's station. They call a nurse one at a time. You sit down. If the intensivist is new or doesn't know the case, you just kind of give a brief rundown and you let them know what's going on. What do you need? What are your concerns? And that kind of makes sense why for day shift, they ask all these difficult questions because they need to know by 9 a.m. If you get a report by 7.30 a.m., you're doing some nursing care, 9 a.m. comes, you don't know what to ask your intensivist as far as like how the care should go for this patient. So I kind of I kind of get why they ask difficult questions. And overall, it wasn't too bad. Drank some coffee at like 5, 5 p.m. or geez, 5 a.m. And um, yeah, just rock, rock and roll till 11 it was nice. Nurses helped me out. wasn't too bad. Had to order breakfast, all that fun mm-hmm. stuff. Overall, good shift. Picked up. Paced up. Looked nice. And yeah. Yeah. Ideally, if you're staying over like four or whatever hours you do, usually what I do is I haven't stayed over yet, but usually I ask if they need like a break nurse somewhere, like on another unit, even if I'm like an ICU, because it's a lot more chiller to be like a break nurse or a resource nurse compared to having your your patients, for example, the extra four hours. So I always try to lean on that. So if that's an option, I highly recommend that because you could just lay low not worry about too much charting and just help with the patient care yeah and i know some hospitals you can pick up like earlier so i think that's a benefit for us working nights it's probably easier to pick up a shift at 3 p.m and then stay the 16 and going home because your sleep your sleep is going to completely get messed up you go to sleep at noon time you just wake up at like seven eight o'clock you stay up try to go to sleep again it just feels like a blur yeah so it's tough how did you feel I was exhausted. I'm trying to kind of recollect how everything went down. I was just, you know, blasting some EDM music, driving home at like afternoon time. The sun was hitting. Uh, Yeah, when I got home, you know, when you get home for night shift, you get your energy back, you go do something. But I'm just like, I got to go lay down, man. Mm -hmm. So slept for like four or five hours, woke up, did something again, and then try to go sleep at midnight again to wake up the next day and live a normal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you were you definitely tired that day for sure. You're a little grumpy, but it's okay. <laughs> Forgive you. You know, I made that money. Yeah, yeah. But I had a pretty interesting case. So on one of my my nights, I started off in a step down, and then at eleven o'clock, I got transferred to the ICU because somebody ended up coding down in the in the ED, and it was an interesting case because the patient seemed to come in for like a CHF exacerbation slash fluid overload. Uh, they gave him some Lasix. He went into AFib. And then for some reason, his heart rate dropped and he basically became a PEA. But what makes it interesting is that in between that time, 
there are trying to decide the family and, and the patient if he wants to be a full code or a DNR. And he has this cancer, it's called Merkel's cell carcinoma with with it metastasizing, he only had like a 52% survival rate of, yeah. of like five years given that cancer. So they're having this 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 debate on whether he wants to be a full core or, or a DNR. And during that whole debacle, he ended up coding. So they coded him uh, on a bright side. The code only lasted three minutes. They only gave him one push of FB, did CPR, and they brought him back. So when I got him, he was already eight times four. So it was the first time I've ever had a situation like that where down in the ED, they're they're trying to figure out if it should be a full full code or a DNR, and he ended up coding. So that's like super scary. Then they brought him up, and he was still a full code on the computer. But he told me, and his wife told me that he wants to be a DNR. So I was kind of like a little bit um, sketched out the whole night because in a computer he's still uh, he's still a full code, and it was downtime. So we couldn't access the computers until like four o'clock in the morning, and I got him like around midnight. So it's like. I'm trying to just hang out with this guy, trying to hope for the best, so we could change this this full code into DNR in, in the system, just in case something were to happen. But he, he did well for me during that shift. Uh, he was completely anti times four the rest of my shift. But the thing is, when I drew his labs in the morning, they were real bad. He was super hyperkalemic. Troponins were shot up like crazy. His FOS was all messed up. His mag was all messed up. Uh, he seemed to be a little more acidotic. And what's interesting is I came back couple of days later and it was the same charge nurse was there and I asked what happened to the patient and she said that he ended up passing away which is very sad but he knew that he was going to pass away because he told me that he's ready to go he's like I don't want anything else done to me like I'm tired like I'm done with all of this yeah. just let me be and it was it was very heart heartwarming because the wife came in and like they were talking for a little bit she gave him a kiss they talked for a little bit and he like told her like you know that you know he's 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 like He's, he's done like he doesn't want anything else done he's got this cancer and he was very content uh of just, just passing away and he was not fixated but it's almost like he knew it was coming and she knew it was coming too she wasn't crying or anything at that point in time but you know she was just trying to make the best out of the situation she told me like hey you know we want to make sure this is linear we don't want any compressions on my husband and my husband's like i don't want any compressions on myself so that word was kind of like wishfully hoping he's just going to um have have a good night and he slept majority, majority of the night he was just just an excruciating pain he just got his chest worked down for three minutes uh luckily the cd showed that nothing was broken every sternum was intact ribs were intact no issues with that but it also showed a worsening of his cancer so that 52 percent probably went down to like a good 10 20 percent it was all over his body it was in his lungs it was in his, it was in his liver it was all throughout his body so um he he probably went a nicer way than he probably would have in, in the future but it, it was just it was just um like kind of humbling to to see that sometimes people could sense when they're going to pass away and they're just content like he had no regrets uh the wife was telling me about how much good times they had how good of a guy he he was he was brooklyn he had a thick brooklyn accent too so that, that was pretty cool and we just talked a little bit like about life and about like his kids, about his family and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really cool. But like I said, it was super interesting to, to like see that like this patient like knew that this was probably his his uh, last time in, on, on his earth. He even said that, hey, can my can everybody just come by tomorrow and, and I want to see him. So he like legit knew in a, in a way that he's not going to be here any longer. It always makes a nursing experience a lot better when 
the patient is with integrity, the family's content, and that transition is smooth. Uh, a couple nights ago, that one guy that we talked about with the EQH withdrawals, I ended up making him comfort care, and he died the first three hours of my shift. And uh, he had really bad um, epitexis. He was like in a non-rebreather. There was blood all over. They kept wiping it out. He kept nose bleeding. He had a clot in his mouth, which I didn't even suction out because he probably would have kept bleeding. The towels were all drenched. And when, you know, he was started on a dilated uh, PC or not PCA, just a basal, right? And when he passed away, it was the opposite experience that I had where the father was like upset. He was kind of hitting the, you know, the bed. When I gave him a box of tissues, he was kind of pissed and grabbed it. And I understand what he's going through. He was there for a whole month with his son trying to save his life, trying to do the best for him. And, you know, even the the son said before he passed away that I wouldn't be able to do this without my father. So, mm. you know, younger guy has a two and eight year old. So it makes the situation not harder versus somebody with, you know, living in integrity and being peaceful. But that's just the the beautiful experience of nursing that we see. So that was the first patient on this contract that I seen transition to comfort care and passed away. I had I admitted him initially in the ICU. I remember he, he was, he had a very bad aside. He's like very rounded abdomen, right? And that's what's crazy is seeing like alcohol take someone's life because it it's, affects your liver. So that's why he was bleeding so much. You can't clot, uh, you go into um, DIC. It's it's a, it's a nasty thing to go out with, with cirrhosis or or alcohol, liver disease, like liver failure. It, it sucks and nothing we could, we could do to you because I know I, in the beginning they were considering of giving him a liver transplant, but he was not a candidate anymore just because it was just, so bad like his other organs were already shutting down when he came to hospital like his kidneys took a, took a giant hit he was just very 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 sick and then and there was nothing they could do for him like yeah. liver transplant was completely out of pictures because he was having like almost um end stage like renal failure like end stage organ failure everything was just was just getting shut down because you can't filter your blood properly because livers shot you know and your coagulopathies are all through the roof they're all messed up you can't clot properly and it's just a cascade of of just problems and problems and problems it just makes you wonder guys where people have moderate alcohol consumption they okay they live a long time 70s and somebody that's just in their 40s and passes away from this like how severe is your drinking habit you know where's your family with this like why aren't you seeking help like i just don't understand the the mentality of consuming so much booze but it's of course an addiction and it's you know hard to understand yeah. And other than that, in my shift, it's been just pretty uneventful. Like I've had a lot of confused patients that I was just doing a lot of like, you know, house sitting and nannying and hey, stay in bed. Literally, you know, it's, uh, there was a funny meme that I saw yesterday, just like my shift reminding my patient with a Foley every 15 minutes that he could go ahead and pee. And he's like, I got to get up to use the bathroom. <laughs> That's been like me for like Q12 to three nights in a row. I had one lady that had a Foley, the other time was taken out. So she was just soaking up the bed. And the third time, which was yesterday, that guy just kept yanking on his Foley, trying to get out of bed. Um, and But one cool thing I learned was about a disease process called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So this is a genetic disorder, and it seems like both the mom and dad had it, which it passed it on to her. And antitrypsin anti or alpha one antitrypsin is a protein that the liver produces that protects the body and tissue from being damaged when you have like infectious fighting diseases or agents mm -hmm. and it's basically lubricates the body protects you from the immune system mm -hmm. so given her case 
the life expectancy is usually six years old because your lungs give out. Mm. So she had a lung transplant in 2015. So she was able to survive a lot longer. She does have like CKD stage four because that disease affects the kidneys and lungs. Mm. Unfortunate. So I learned that disease process, which was cool, but she just had all other stuff going on. I don't know if it's related to osteoporosis somehow, where you have weak bones due to this, mm. but she basically had a uh, fracture, ulnar fracture, went home, was mopping the floor, missed her ortho appointment, fell down again, yeah. fractured her hip, and a lot of distress. On top of this, I guess she had an allergy to narco before, where she took it before and she was going crazy for a week. In the other hospital, they gave her narco, so they, she uh, got brought in for metabolic, multifactorial metabolic encephalopathy. So they stopped her like, uh, you know, depressant, uh, antidepressant medications, all the stuff. She didn't get any narco, only Tylenol for her pain and yeah. was trying to uh, get better. Yeah, man. It's it's crazy how, <laughs> I don't want to laugh, but how much, it's, it's okay, how much man. falls happen in, in the world. <laughs> Dude, it's so crazy, right? Like if you're not, if you don't work in healthcare, you don't understand how many people fall and break some bones. Like I'll literally people that need like a new hip, a new knee, bilateral hips, femurs, everything like that. It's, it's <laughs> like when I sit in the hospital, I'm like, whoa, like old people fall a lot. You know, old people fall a lot and that shit causes a lot of trauma. Yes, and sometimes they die just from a fall. It was like mind blowing to me. I first time in the hospital, I'm like, oh shit, this is, all this is happening from people falling. I was like super surprised. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, but last night uh, when I worked with, with Matt, um, I had a pretty interesting case. We had a, I don't want to get too much into background because I'm not sure how deep that will be into HIPAA just because she has a specific history. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to say anything, but whatever. Uh, not whatever, Ryan, getting this podcast <laughs> closed down. Watch what you say, bro. <laughs> right. Uh, so we had a, a patient come in, a quadriplegic uh, from a very, very young age, came in and went into basically a hypercapnic respiratory failure. She, uh, the patient was intubated, then she, that patient was extubated and then re-intubated a second time, and then extubated the patient a third time, and I had her a day after the extubator, the patient the uh, third time. And she was, and she was a one-to-one. -one. Yeah, she was a one-to-one, because -one. she was a lot. She, she, she was a lot, she was a lot of work because she wasn't doing very good, to begin with, and the thing is, we're trying everything in our power to prevent this patient from getting reintubated because this will be the third reintubation and it's going to be a trach. And I don't like people get trachs because it's it sucks. It's a lot of times we see the worst of them and they don't do very well because it's the ICU, and we don't really see a lot of people, you know, get better, especially in these kind of circumstances. So we, we're trying everything in our power to to um, not have her get reintubated. Her major problem was anxiety. Super anxious. Um, I gave her some Adirax, uh, helped helped a little bit for sure, but it was just, just her just constantly just being anxious. She kept asking me about how her numbers are doing, you know, okay, and her numbers were fine. Her numbers were fine. She was standing well, on a, of course, on a BiPAP, 40%. I think she was 14 or 11 over four or something. I forgot what it was. Um, 11 over four, she was 40%. So that's like a decently um, high setting, right? It's not, it's not the smallest thing that you, you could put somebody on. And just super, super anxious. And the thing is that once she took the BiPAP off, she would deset within like 30 seconds and she had a very weak cough. So I was giving her, uh, like I was coughing her, like how you how, a, how you cough a person that, that's like paraplegic or a quad where you yeah. push in a diaphragm. 
So she was coughing, but it was very weak. So I literally had to push on her diaphragm to f- put more Stim- pressure. Stimulate that Stimulate, response. yeah. So to get that out. And she still was able to get that the phlegm out. And then they were suctioning her so much during the day where when I suctioned her, anti-suctioned her, there was just so much blood red, Damn. red blood. And the thing is, she has a bleed going on somewhere because your hemoglobin dropped during the day. They had to give her two units. It was stable on, on, on my shift, but I don't know if she has like... Like imagine if she had like an esophageal varicy or something or, or a nick the varicy somewhere. Like that's super scary. She's had like blood, bright red blood coming out of there. And I had to suction her like three or four times overnight. And it was just like staying there. I, I couldn't, like I, I couldn't just like do anything because it was, it was super stressful. And then plus she had the, um, she had, so she couldn't pee. So she had literally like a hole in her belly. I forgot what is on top of my head, but she had a little hole in the belly that I had to literally straight cath. She has like a pouch there and this That's pouch cool. yeah, stores urine. So I literally had to pop a stray cat in, in there and ileal conduit, it was called. Ileal conduit she had. And I was literally doing that every two to four hours, depending on just guesswork. So what organ were you hitting? Ileal conduit. So you, you were taking urine out of the ileal conduit? Yeah. So does she, does she pee? No, no pee. That's okay. how it's like they pee out. So the pee's going there. So the piece chilling there, and it's yeah. like a little hole. It looks I'm, like a belly button. I'm just curious on what these surgeons did to create this little pouch yeah. where the ureters are pouring urine there, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. But it's literally a hole, and it nothing comes out of the hole once you, until you puncture it. Then it drains. So I don't know if there's like a little like a closing valve, like yeah. a valve or something, but yeah. And and like her WC jumped up from like 16 to like 29 point something. And she had no fevers, so she's going septic. She knew she came in for pneumonia. So it was just a giant slew of problems that are just exacerbating her anxiety and her respiratory issues. And plus, they just pulled a chest tube out, out of her. So she just had so much going on. And it was just like me trying to just ease her anxiety. And it was it was, it was just hard. Because what's what's interesting about her is mm-hmm. she had that traumatic experience when she was younger. So I wonder how much of that PTSD is getting transferred over into her everyday life that's affecting her right when she had that accident um at the pool right so if you have like this drowning experience what if like you having air hunger is you reliving that experience of not being able to breathe so like it's like childhood trauma that keeps getting brought up and she's but she's you know she can breathe but she's just you know doing her thing on bipap and it just makes things worse and these are usually our freaking patients that get intubated and we have such a hard time extubating and keeping them yeah, out of getting reintubated. Yeah, it's tough because, you know, she's a quadriplegic. So technically her lung volume isn't going to be the best in the first place, right? You're not running. You're not really testing your lungs. It's you're just laying there and just almost like the minimum breathing you're doing. And then on top of that, you get pneumonia. And on top of that, you get a pneumothorax. So it's like how much how res- resilient are your lungs that if they could bounce back from that yeah you know like like how how healthy are, are those lungs because they're not getting tested like we have very healthy lungs we're athletic people we train we work out we go to the gym we're very healthy so we could we could take a lot of strain but this patient can't in the first place because she's doing that bare minimum to begin with yeah. yeah so it's just like all this cascade of issues and now you throw on sepsis on top of this because of the wbcs and I bleed somewhere because your hemoglobin dropped. It's just everything's coming coming all at once, and 
I don't know. She wasn't looking too hot, dude. I had my other uh, C19 guy, which is uh, nonverbal. He suffered a traumatic brain injury when he was in his early 20s. So he has he can't do anything. All he could do is just move his left hand. And he had such bad, like his whole left lung was whited out. And you're, you know, you can't tell him to cough because he's not alert. So it's like, how do you get this guy to clear secretions? You're trying to, you know, do a gag reflex and get him to cough. And the worst thing is once you intubate somebody that's anal times one and can't follow commands and is, you know, has a TBI, what's the next steps? Yeah. Trach and peg. Yeah. So they're trying, they're trying so hard to prevent that from happening. I don't know what's going to happen with this guy because he was on um, a non-rebreather maxed out in a 15. Oh, I'm sorry. He was on high flow maxed out in a non-rebreather maxed out. And you can't, you know, you only could do pulmonary toileting so much and neb so much, but you, you know, he can't do it himself. So um, that's unfortunate, man. And the worst thing about this that like creeps me out. So he, when he came in, his sodium was 188. Mm. I've never heard of a sodium that high till I, I took care of this guy, but it's possible. So you have a mother that's taking care of him. She doesn't work. She gets money from the government for taking care of him. Mm. And it looks like he already doesn't have the best quality of life, given his circumstance of having a high sodium. So now we're going to intubate this guy, given his case. You're going to trick and peg the poor guy. He's already, who knows if he's there cognitively, giving his scenario of the traumatic brain injury. And, you know, the mom's going to want him to be a full code and do everything done because she's getting like money from the government. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe she really loves him, right? Like I'm just painting a scenario here, but it's just so sad for these patients where we're just taking them through the craziest spectrum of healthcare mm -hmm. to keep them alive. And like, what, what is the quality of care that yeah. we always talk about? And is it the best for this person? Cause he's going to be in and out of the hospital. Yeah. And you can live for a long time, but you said the quality, you just, a body and it, and it sucks because I had a case like that back in Chicago too where we had to get ethics involved because the family member was just cash and checks this this patient had just wounds everywhere super dehydrated just not taken care of and the patient was, patient family was just using it just for just for income and it's crazy how that works the patient was almost basically brain dead and it was just wasting away just for just for money. It's it's really sad how you, how you can see that kind of stuff, man. But that's kind of how the world works sometimes. That's that's the reality of things. Yeah. Same way when you have like SIDS or like shake shaking baby syndrome, all that kind of stuff. When I used to see that like in clinicals back when I was in nursing school, like you don't you, you can't comprehend or realize that this stuff happens until you actually see it because especially with like infants, like you wouldn't think that who would possibly in their right mind take an infant that's crying and shake it so hard where it severs their spinal cord and now this infant is paralyzed. Like there are some really crazy situations out there in the world and it's kind of nice, you could say, that we see this because we, because we do get a really good taste of reality. But it's also very sad because we got to deal with this reality too. Yeah, I was I was working the shift yesterday. I'm just like, dude, honestly, from all the careers in the world, I think nurses have the craziest experiences Shout out to the nurses and we deal with the most yeah. because we see everything. The doctors deal with the, the physical, the mechanical part of getting this guy alive. You have a surgeon, which is a crazy profession as well. Yeah. They cut up a patient open high risk, but they don't see the emotional side, the draining side of everything. And we get the full spectrum of, you know, the patient post-surgery freaking, 
bowels, urine, mm-hmm. vomit, blood. And it's just like, we have a, such an insane role. Yeah. So just like, you know, nurses coming off their shift or having, you know, a crazy shift, like pat yourself on the back. You guys are freaking amazing. We are amazing for what we do. And I don't think there's a lot, there's not a lot of people in the world that could handle what the hell we do. Same with RT, dude. If sometimes I don't know the hell to do with my patient, not like struggling to breathe. I'm like, hey, can somebody call RT? <laughs> Hopefully they can figure it out, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, not to like put down a physicians or any, anything like that. Physicians usually come by when we don't know what to, what to do. And if you don't know what, what to do, you know, it's, we don't know what to do. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for this debrief. Camera just died. We're going to cut it short. We'll see you guys on the next one. So, guys, peace.